The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 20, Manifest Destiny and the Election of 1844. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Welcome back. As always, if you are um, into the whole social media thing, please check me out at American Hiscast on Twitter. I don't do a Facebook, so you won't find me there. I also um, – uh, I do have a personal Facebook, but there isn't a page dedicated to the podcast. Also, you can visit the website, theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and you'll find the sources used to make up the shows as well as a chance to sign up for the mailing list. And I want to encourage you to sign up for my email list. I'm emailing a bit more these days, um, using the silliness of the internet to help teach history and economics, kind of in a fun and interesting way. Um, so check it out. And as always, if you leave a review, I will give you a shout out here on the show as a way of thanking you, even if the review isn't positive. So this week we have a review from Gotta Go Seven Five O Three. Unfortunately for me, Gotta Go doesn't like the show. I guess. That's why his name is Gotta Go, or her name is Gotta Go. Um, the review title is, quote, seems rather childish, and um, the reviewer says that I am quite opinionated, and I should just, quote, stick to history, end quote. Now, I'm sorry um, that you did not enjoy the show, Gotta Go. I really wish you had taken the time to email me with your concerns. Your review was only two sentences long and did not go into any real depth. So if you're still listening, please feel free to email me with your critique, and um, I can address it. Hopefully we can um, move forward together. The email is sean at the American History Podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and um, from any and all listeners for that uh, sake. Okay, so before we get into the meat of the episode, I'd just like to start us off with a bit of a song. This particular song was popular in the years right before the war with Mexico, and it is called Old Dan Tucker. I'll see you on the other side. Enough of that. It's taken us a few episodes. Okay, more than a few episodes, but um, we are now on the brink of the war between the United States and Mexico. So without further ado, let's get started. Now, one of the important aspects, which I've not touched on in a while, but directly impacts the war, and it could be argued this is a cause of the war, um, is the idea of manifest destiny. Actually, that is part of what my argument is. Um, This term is attributed to John O'Sullivan, he was a journalist and a supporter of Andrew Jackson. Now, first, O'Sullivan had an interesting or had an article in the late 1830s in which he mentioned, quote, divine destiny. Now, that's not quite the term manifest destiny, but he was talking about the American role or the U.S.'s role in the world and mentioned values like equality and rights of conscience. That was 
1845, in an essay titled Annexation, where O'Sullivan first used the term manifest destiny. Now, this article is important to our story because O'Sullivan was advocating for the United States to annex the Republic of Texas because it was, quote, our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions, end quote. So while O'Sullivan might have coined the term, he was simply expressing what millions of Americans in the 1840s and 50s already believed. They believed, or many of them believed, that God chose Americans and America to control the Western Hemisphere. They believed it was their mission to spread democratic institutions from, quote, sea to shining sea, end quote. Um, you very much could argue that the desire to spread American democratic institutions around the world, which is part and parcel of the modern American empire, springs from these 19th century feelings. Combined with this idea of divine desire was a great amount of land greed, something that I've mentioned before. So you mix in that greed with idealism and biff-bam-boom, you got a potent mixture leading to expansion. And I would argue that this, is, this movement really began in the 1830s with the administrations of Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren and their policy of removing the Indians from the southeast into Oklahoma. Now, the election of 1844 was, at the end of the day, an expression of manifest destiny, as Texas was the leading issue in the campaign. Expansionist Democrats supported James Polk, sometimes known as Little Hickory, as he had been a longtime supporter of Andrew Jackson. During the Bank War, um, he was Jackson's most prominent ally in the House of Representatives and even became Speaker of the House from 1835 through 1839. Thus, historians often extend Jacksonian democracy, or the age of Jackson, through the presidency of Polk in 1848. Now, Polk ran on a fairly simple campaign. He promised to annex Texas and gain the Oregon Territory up to the 5440 parallel. His was a campaign that was quintessentially based on manifest destiny and nationalism. Now, as his opponent, the Whigs nominated Henry Clay, his third run for the presidency. Clay was a major American politician, um, one of what I refer to as the triumvirate of three great American statesmen um, who lived during the first half of the 19th century, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, and John C. Calhoun. Now, Whigs, in general, were opposed to the incorporation of Texas as a new slave state. And after consulting with his colleagues, Clay, who was the presumptive Whig nominee for president, decided to finally weigh in on the issue of Texas. This was at a point before he had actually been confirmed as the nominee. Now, in the 1840s, the best method for getting your political message out was for a politician to write a letter and have a friendly newspaper publish it. And then within weeks, other papers throughout the country would pick up the letter, and they would publish it as well. So Clay ended up writing this letter in which he rejected Tyler's treaty for the annexation of Texas. Um, this idea of writing this letter and getting it published was actually rejected by his counselors, all of whom recognized what he didn't. The idea of Texas being annexed was wildly popular in both the South and the West. Um, his advisors counseled inaction on this issue. However, Clay was on a tour of the South, and the Texas question um, continued to come up again and again. Unhappy with the situation, by the time he arrived in North Carolina, he decided to compose the letter after all. It was a letter, uh, letter that he would later regret. In it, he explained his reasons for opposing the treaty. These reasons included the following. Number one, Texas um, had a crippling debt 
all of which would have to be assumed by the United States. Number two, the fact that a large portion of Americans opposed annexation. Number three, the likelihood for sectional discord in the aftermath. Number four, the effect or the fact that in an earlier treaty, the United States had relinquished all claims to Texas. And finally, number five, Mexico had never abandoned its claims to Texas. As far as Clay was concerned, annexation and war with Mexico were the same thing. Clay said, quote, I regard all wars as great calamities and honorable peace as the wisest and truest policy of this country, end quote. Now, part of Clay's calculation was based upon the fact that he was sure the Democrats would nominate Martin Van Buren, and Van Buren was also likely to come out against annexation. Thus, Clay sent the letter to John Crittenden in Washington, D.C. with instructions to give it to the leading Whig newspaper. Indeed, Van Buren did come out against the war, much to the chagrin of Jackson and the Jacksonian Democrats. This then opened the door for a dark horse candidate to win the nomination, one who was more in line with Jacksonian ideology, James K. Polk. So let's talk a little bit about his nomination. Polk simply wanted to be the vice presidential nominee for the party. But Van Buren wasn't on board for this idea. That actually ended up dooming Van Buren's run, as his anti-annexation position made him no longer tolerable to Jackson, who, for all intents and purposes, still ran the party. Polk was known as pro-annexation, and he finally emerges as the nominee on the ninth ballot at the Democratic Convention. Van Buren was, of course, upset by this turn of events, but he kind of did it to himself and really had no one to blame but himself. Now, a third party emerged during this period, and that was the uh, Liberty Party. Created for the anti-extension of slavery voters, it nominated James G. Birney, the founder of the Kentucky Anti-Slavery Society. It had run a candidate in the 1840, and it it was doing so again in 1844. Some historians believe that the Liberty Party ran strong enough in New York that it, it ended up costing Henry Clay the election. Either way, the Democrats now believed they had a mandate supporting annexation. Now, this election had been quite vicious. The Whigs condemned Polk as both a coward and a duelist. Both sides played rough, but in the end, Polk won 49.5% of the popular vote and 170 of the 275 electoral college votes to win the presidency. Polk ended up losing only Ohio and, oddly enough, both the state of his residence, Tennessee, and his birth state, North Carolina, the first man to win the presidency while losing his home state or states. Now, we've talked a lot about Texas, but we haven't mentioned it in the aftermath of its independence from Mexico. So let's quickly catch up. At this point, Texas was nominally independent from Mexico. Mexico had refused to recognize the independence of Texas um, since 1836, even though um, Santa Ana had signed the treaty. They basically said this was done at gunpoint and thus it was invalid, which they have kind of a point there. Um, But anyways, Mexico refused to recognize Texas independence and it threatened to go to war um, if the United States attempted to annex Texas. Now, Texans, for their part, were fearful of this threat um, as Mexico had a larger and much more experienced military. The United States, in the years before the end of uh, World War II, you might know, kept a very small frontier army. In 1845, the army numbered approximately 7,300 men. Now, that's according to a book titled The Regular Army Before the Civil War, published by the U.S. Army Center for Military History. 
Um, so the U.S. Army wasn't the formidable military machine that you might think of today. And the Navy, the U.S. Navy was just as small, if not smaller. Now, to make matters more complicated, Texas signed treaties with England, France, and the Netherlands for protection um, between 1839 and 1840. Britain was interested in using Texas as a buffer zone against further American expansion, as the British thought this would give them a means of challenging American power and its Monroe Doctrine. The French were also interested in dividing North America and perhaps getting a foothold on the continent again. So in 1845, as a lame-duck president, John Tyler um, gets a joint resolution passed by Congress for annexation. Now, the importance of this is, while it's not a treaty, a treaty would need two-thirds vote in the Senate, and many Whigs at this point opposed Texas, Tyler could use that as a mandate and start moving forward with annexation. Thus, Texas was already a part of the Union by the time Polk took the oath of office in March 1845. Mexico itself, of course, claimed that the United States had unjustly taken Texas, and they refused to recognize the annexation. So James K. Polk takes office in May, I mean, sorry, in March, with a bit of a problem on his hands. Um, Mexico is upset, and the threat of war hangs over the relationship between the two countries. One of the interesting things about the war is that, according to Jeffrey Blaney, war usually breaks out because both sides think they can win. No one ever thinks they are going to lose the war. Of course, he notes this is ridiculous, as 50% of all sides lose the war. So you've got a 50-50 chance of losing. In the meantime, Polk would be one of the most successful one-term presidents in American history. He went into office with four clearly defined goals for his presidency. Number one, he wanted to reestablish the independent treasury system, like the one that was established by Van Buren. The second thing he wanted to do was to reduce tariffs from 35 to 32%. Number three, he wanted to acquire some or all of the Oregon Territory. And number four, acquire California and its harbors from Mexico. Now, we won't focus too much on all of Polk's goals or his presidential, uh, presidency overall. We will here quickly go into his plan for Oregon. And then, of course, in the future episodes, we'll be talking about Texas. Um, so let's get on to Oregon. The region had been disputed territory for decades, as Spain, Russia, and Britain, and the United States all claimed various sections of Oregon. As for the United States, John Jacob Astor developed the American Fur Company into a huge enterprise by organizing the fur trade from the Great Lakes to Oregon. Now, when he died in 1848, he was the richest man in America, and, as you can imagine, fairly influential in politics. So he had a desire to see the American flag flying over the Oregon Territory. As for Spain, it relinquished all claims to Oregon in the Florida Purchase Treaty of 1819. So by the 1840s, there wasn't a major player in the region. Russia had also claimed the region and went so far as to establish a fort there in 1812, just north of modern-day San Francisco. Now, some historians argue that the purpose of the Monroe Doctrine was, in some ways, to reject Russian claims in this area. But in the end, the Russians and the Americans, who had a far more friendly relationship in the 19th century, agreed to a series of treaties in 1824 and 1825 that saw the Russians withdraw to above the 5440 line. Thus, the only claimants left were the British and the Americans. 
Now, at this point, American migration started to flow into the Oregon region, um, just south of the Columbia River. The trek became somewhat easier in the 1840s, thanks to Jedediah Smith. He discovered the, quote, southern pass through the Rocky Mountains in southern Wyoming. This route became the route for immigrants into the West in the 19th century. And while many made the journey, uh, while it made the journey easier, the journey was still amazingly difficult. Um, 2,000 mile long, this Oregon Trail averaged an astonishing um, 17 deaths per mile. The trail had two jumping off points. One was at Independence, Missouri, and the other was Council Bluffs, Iowa. By 1846, 5,000 American settlers lived south of the Columbia River, while the British had only about 700 people north of the river. So, needless to say, the British were concerned by the large amount of U.S. migration into the region. To make matters worse, the region between the Columbia River and the 49th parallel was disputed. Polk, who in my mind was a shrewd politician and negotiator, had argued throughout the campaign that he wanted 54-40 or he would take the United States to war against Britain. Now, in the end, he abandoned his campaign slogan of 54-40 or fight and came to an agreement with Britain in 1846, which made the 49th parallel the border between the United States and British Canada. Now, although he had talked a good talk about war, in reality, um, at least in my mind, Polk did not want to um, tip the north-south political balance by adding new northern states. Um, Pro-slavery Democrats, who were happy with the annexation of Texas and the election of 1844, accepted the fact that he kind of abandoned that campaign promise, so everybody was happy. Thus, the Oregon Treaty of 1846 gives the United States the Oregon Territory south of the 49th parallel. The treaty was also accepted, I should add, quite readily, as war with Mexico was on the horizon, and thus many senators voted in the affirmative. The northwestern states were, however, not happy, as the southerners uh, got all of Texas, and the United States did not get all of Oregon, or maybe you could say they didn't get all of Oregon. Thus, sectionalism was on the rise again. Okay, so that is all for this episode. Um, we're right at the 20-minute mark, so are pretty close to it. Um, so this is the end of the build-up to the war with Mexico. I hope you are ready, or at least uh, as ready as I am, because the next episode will get us to the actual um, beginnings of the war. It's called Confrontation, and I can't wait for you to hear that one. So please, if you like this episode, again, as always, visit us on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. If you have a little extra time, give us a review. It's appreciated. If you would like to get in touch with me, um, please contact me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com, and we'll see you again real soon. <laughs>